0: This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed, um, for those <laughs> kind introductory remarks. and um, My mind often goes back to those days in 1986 when we were both students in Krakow Mike was a Polish expert because we agreed that <laughs> nothing much was going to happen in the Soviet Union. It was probably better to concentrate on Poland that, right? was where That's the, right. that was where the action was. and. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for, for coming. And I'm going to talk um, for a bit, but I'd, I would like your questions, particularly very critical ones, because one of the troubles with um, these sort of authors' talks is they tend to be self selecting when people come along because they love the book, and that's great, but it's even better when people come along with disagreement. So if you're boiling with anger about what you've read or you become boiling with anger after what you've hear, heard me say, please don't hold back. I should be glad to have your... your um, your questions. Let me just start off by um, perhaps preempting some of those criticisms um, by explaining what the book is not. It is not saying that Russia in the 1990s was a wonderful place, a Jeffersonian democracy with a um, well-reformed and fast-growing economy, um, which was on the track to a kind of economic and political nirvana until the ex-KGB people came along and ruined it. There are books of that kind, but this is not one of them. I actually argue very strongly in the book that the roots of what we see now in Russia go back to the 1990s. And I had a very good illustration of this when I was debating with none other than Boris Berezovsky at a meeting in London, and he explained in, in really compelling detail the sinister overlap of political and economic power and the use of secret police tactics um, to preserve it in Putin's Russia. And somebody got up from the audience, a Russian I'm glad to see, him, and said, Boris Avramovich, this is absolutely excellent description, but perhaps not coming from you, because this monster that you describe is one that you yourself created.
2: Mm-hmm. And if we
1: look, when did we first see vote rigging? Um, when did we first see the... Um, overlap of business political power. Many, many of the things that we see now in Putin's Russia um, started started then. It's also not a pro-oligarch book, as you may gather, I criticize Berezovsky very sharply and Hodokovsky too. I'm not saying for example that Hodakovsky is a political prisoner. And, um, in fact, if you read the book, you'll notice the phrase comes up every now and again, uh, strenuously protests all wrongdoing, uh, or or strenuously protests his innocence, and vehemently denies all wrongdoing. Now, this is the what the English libel law makes you do and it in fact comes even what I'm saying here because if the, this... Say does, that phrase again just so the teacher is... Um, vehemently protests, um, it, it denies all wrongdoing and strenuously protests his innocence and this is what English libel lawyers make you write instead of the very interesting things that you wanted to write and unfortunately it even applies to the American book too because it's an interesting feature of English libel law that I can be sued in an English court even for something that's published in America hmm. by an American publisher. I could even be sued if I was an American author. And this is an interesting interesting details. But anyway, when you come across these phrases, particularly with regard to the oligarchs, I would like you um, perhaps mentally to substitute them with, instead of vehemently protests, Um, his innocence, have something on the lines of has no convincing explanation for his conduct. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I couldn't possibly. I I couldn't possibly write that. (laughs) I'm I'm not saying the West has got everything right. And I'm also... It is absolutely not an anti-Russian book. And this is one of the things that gets me very annoyed when they say, ah... People come up to me and say, Edward, wonderful, you you, you hate Russia as much as I do. And I said, I don't hate Russia. And this is not an anti-Russian book. And I have a little test which um, I will... Um say that Stanford faculty are not allowed to take part in this, which will um, not embarrass them if they don't know the answers and <laughs> not spot. The test that they do. If I read out the following names, who knows who I am talking about? Um Babitsky, <coughs> Litvinov, Dremluga, Feinberg. Are we getting anywhere? Um, these are the names of just some of the protesters who actually founded the modern human rights movement. They are in part of a Russian tradition that goes back to the Decembrists, goes on through people like Mandelstam and Martova, right up to um, Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn and other names. And if we were talking about Germany, it would be absolutely inconceivable that a German audience would not, for example, have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Or the Stauffenberg conspirators, the last of whom incidentally died this morning. Yeah. Um, because they are part of the sort of the, the, the absolute fabric of German um, attitudes to the past. And they're people that Germans are proud of because they were part of the resistance to Nazism. Um, it's one of the most deplorable aspects of the way in which I describe in the book, the way in which Putin and his cronies have hijacked Russian history and made it into a story of authoritarianism and um, an empire that people like those names I mentioned get left out. They are, of course, and I knew it was on the tip of your tongues, they are the demonstrators who, with what would seem to us suicidal bravery, are demonstrated in Red Square on August the twenty-fifth, nineteen sixty-eight, against the Soviet-led invasion of Czechoslovakia, and were punished with exceptional severity. And if you just wander up the road to the Hoover Institution exhibition, you can actually see the poems that Gorbunovskaya wrote in prison, of, in a in, in, in psychiatric hospital, and then, then then in prison. So this is absolutely not. I think don't leave. Don't, oh, there's one I left out. Bogoraz. Um, so all, oh, there's eight altogether. Um, so. Um, this is not an anti-Russian book. It's an anti-Putin book. It's an anti-Czechist book. Um, it's an anti-Kremlin book, if you like. Um, and I'm also not saying, despite the rather provocative title, that the old Cold War is coming back again. The old Cold War was quite different. The old Cold War was military, it was ideological, it was global. And the new Cold War is none of those, these three. It is not really military because the Soviet Union um, had, was a real military superpower and Russia isn't. And some of you may have seen the rather excited headlines about Soviet, uh, Russian bombers buzzing American aircraft carriers, or the Russian naval maneuvers in the Bay of Biscay earlier this year. And it was, on the face it, quite an impressive sight: this mighty flotilla of 20 big Russian ships, and led by the, the flagship of the Russian fleet, the Admiral Kuznetsov. And um, at the same time, um, the Russia the Kremlin was saying we're going to return to a naval presence in the in the the Mediterranean and and some of my more um naive colleagues wrote this up at face value and it was indeed quite impressive if you remember this was not just a flotilla of the Russian Navy this was the Russian Navy (laughs) (laughs) there are 20 seaworthy major surface ships in the Russian Navy at the moment there are more ships That aren't seaworthy. There are ships that aren't surface. They have a lot of submarines. There are more ships which aren't aren't major in terms of their real, the real navy that might be able to project power. That's it and in fact if they want to have a military presence in the Mediterranean as one of the best naval analysts in London said they'd better have a tugboat with them (laughs) and hope that the Turks allow them to go home the same way that they came because to get back to the Sea you have to go through Bosphorus, this is not the same as the Soviet Union, so the military dimension is gone and the ideological dimension is really gone, I do think that there is a a kind of nascent ideology in Russia, it has been called sovereign democracy it may be called something else, it dates back to the, I think the Tsarist idea of autocracy, nationalism, and and orthodoxy, and it's pretty sinister, and I don't like it, Um, but it doesn't present the same sort of full-on ideological clash that communism did. And it's also not global. We don't see... I mean, the the Russian um, support for Hugo Chavez in Venezuela is a kind of decorative bobble on the top of Russian foreign policy. It's not a major strategic alliance. This is basically about... Um, Eastern Europe, which is the, if you like, the main theatre of the of, of the new Cold War. And it's also, of course, not the case that Russia is isolated the way the Soviet Union is isolated. In a way, that's part of the problem. Russia is because it's a capitalist country. Russian companies list on our stock exchanges. Um, Russian companies use our law firms and our accountancy firms. Uh, We have big investments in Russia, there's a big business lobby which wants good relations with Russia. And that's one, in a way, one of the problems which I get onto um, in the book. Um, I do argue, very strongly, however, that there have been huge losses since since 2000, since 1999. And the two words I like to use have a slightly sort of lawyerish tone to them, but I think they're the important ones. It's constraint and redress, which are really the fundamental pillars of what we might loosely loosely call the Western system. Constraint, which means that the rich and the powerful can't do just what they want, and redress, which is that when they do it, something bad happens. Now, that can happen in all manner of ways, but almost every one of those ways has been crippled, hollowed out, or neutered under Putin, the most obvious is the electoral system. If you are a um, rich and powerful person, you do something bad, the voters get fed up about it, and they will vote in someone who will stop you. And we saw the absolute farce, twice in the last six months, of what I hesitate even to call elections. Because elections implies choice. And as those of you who speak Russian will know, it's vibory, from the word choice. I I, actually, when I'm speaking Russian, I call these events galasovania, voting, (laughs) because it seems to me that yeah, the, the fundamental element of competition was missing. And I thought really the last election, the one in which our so-called election, in which Mr. Medvedev won, was something worthy of one of the great Russian novelists. It needed not the, you know, the humble pen of The Economist writer, it needed Bulgakov or Nabokov to write about it, because you had an event which was both totally predictable and totally mystifying at the same time, a real paradox. We knew exactly who was going to win, Medvedev, we still don't know what it means. You were discussing really it at dinner last night. <laughs> Is Medvedev part of a subtle plan by Putin to liberalise and modernise Russia in a way that the, um, uh, his KGB <coughs> colleagues won't be able to stop, possible, I think the probability around 1%, but still I suppose it is possible is it part of a plan for Putin to stay on, was it just a kind of random throw of the dice, we don't know what's going. You know, even he didn't know what was going to happen next, we don't know, sometimes I use the analogy of two of our favourite films, Gone with the Wind and Casablanca we don't know which we're watching, because Gone with the Wind, you sit on the edge of your seat, but the script writers knew the plot, when it was Casablanca, rumor has it, even as they were filming, Humphrey Bogart didn't know whether he was going to end up um, with Ilsa or whether she was going to go off with, um, with Victor Laszlo because they are writing it as they went along. So um, when we're looking at criminology, uh, cremin- is it gone with the window in Casablanca? What's certainly true is we're back to the days of criminology. Now, some of us may remember criminology just as we remember things like slide rules and carbon paper and if the very, um, uh, perhaps any people as old as Mike and I will remember this, but telex machines <laughs> which if you remember were hardwired point to point messaging systems It was very low bandwidth, which predated email. But that's where I started analysing the Soviet Union was back in the LSE Library in I think about nineteen eighty-two, puzzling my (coughs) way through Pravda and his vestia to make sense of the end of Brezhnev and the rise of um, the rise of Andropov. And we are now back to criminology, we're back to guesswork, and the only thing that I can say with total certainty about criminology was they were always wrong about everything. <laughs> and uh, just as we were told that Andropov was a whiskey and jazz loving um, reformer and liberaliser,
3: we actually should
1: have known he was, that he was the butcher of, the butcher of Budapest, and whose signature fact appears on some of the documents over there in the, um, in, 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 in the Hoover Institute, and not in a favourable context. So when we're told that Medvedev is loves deep purple and the internet and is therefore thoroughly good thing. I'm just a little bit. I'm just a little bit suspicious. But it's not just the political system to be been conduct, Everything else as well. The legal system, very corrupt and very infected under Yeltsin, but not under the direct control of the Kremlin, the way it is now. Uh, the decentralisation, at least under Yeltsin, one had multiple centres of power and some kind of competition between them. Now I'd be the last to say that people like Mayor Lushkov of Moscow or, or Governor Nazarchenko of the um, maritime territory in the Far East were kind of avatars of, of, of good government but at least it meant the Kremlin didn't always get, get what it wanted and in fact in a way it was the genesis of the Czech East rise to power was that the Yeltsin regime was so scared about the alliance of the governors um, against them in, the, um, in the, late, the in the late 1980s and the feeling that they um, might end up in, in jail that they turned to the Czech East as a kind of last desperate throw the dice. So, so the set, recentralization um, thing. The media, perhaps the, the greatest um, big plus of the Yeltsin era was that however corrupt it was and however unprofessional, and I think it probably reached new heights of corruption and unprofessionalism in, in, in some respects, at least every possible spectrum point on the spectrum was covered in the Yeltsin era media and nobody was immune from criticism, least of all Putin. And, you at know, least of all, well, sorry, a bigger part. least of all, Yeltsin, that he would be ridiculed on, some of you may, may remember, the wonderful puppet show, Cookland, which, which was absolutely no hold spot. They would attack anybody, and it was, I think, tremendously significant that when Putin came in, he didn't just say Mr Kusinski is not a fit person to run a television station, which I think was um, you know, a case that could be strongly argued, and Mr Berezovsky even less so, which is a case that could also be strongly argued, brought them under state control, and then the cooking, um, the puppet show, was first of all told not to insult the president, and then went off air, and I thought that was really indicative of the way the things were going. Now, you might say, well, Who cares? this is what the Russians want, they want a period of stability, Russia's booming, why should we mind? And I think there are several several answers to that. The first is that I don't think that the economic record of eight years of Putinism is anything like as good as they maintain. It's been um, very um, brilliantly outlined in foreign affairs by the two people sitting on my right, but also by two other people in Russia called Mr. Um, Milov and Mr. Nemtsov. Um, Milov, the former deputy, energy and, and minister, minister, and Niemtsov, the former deputy, um, Prime Minister, and they, I think, produced in really scathing detail um, the inadequacies on everything from rule of law to infrastructure and public services and everything in between. After tens of billions of dollars, this great bonanza of the hydrocarbon, high prices for oil and gas, the paved road network in Russia is smaller than it was at the beginning. And that statistic actually comes from yet a third source, which is a really interesting one, which is a think tank close to Mr Medvedev, Run by a guy called Igor Jurgens, who runs the kind of Russian big business, um, the Russian Big Business Association, and it's it's well worth looking for. It's a very fat volume in Russian, a very slim one um, in English, but it's it's called something like the, the Challenges. That are really and it's actually it's a really damning indictment of Putin. It's on every page when you read this interesting challenge. Let's sort out the education system. Let's do something about mortality rates in hospitals. Let's do this. Let's do that. You think, well, hang on a minute. What have they been doing for the last eight years? So I think that the record is not that great. What has happened, of course, has been a rise in living standards, and that feeds on to the next thing. People say, well, Putin has 80% popularity, and indeed he does. And if I was a Russian and I was asked, do you live better now under Putin than you used to live under Yeltsin? I would probably say yes, because living standards have shot up and the poverty numbers have gone down. But, of course, the bigger question is, do you think Russia is well run, and if you look at the opinion polls on those, you find that people are worried about corruption, they think public services are bad, and getting worse, they're very fed up with the predatory behaviour of the tax authorities, business feels that infrastructure is not is, is, is a huge problem in just getting hooked up to the electricity network, for example. It's astonishing. After all this money, and they ha- they're, they're having power shortages um, in a country with the largest gas reserves um, in the world, it's an, so, so the record is not that great. But you might still then say, well, hang on a moment, it's still their problem. In the end, that's what they want. Um, let, leave them alone, let them get on with it, and then eventually maybe they'll vote in somebody else. And I don't agree with that either, because the trouble with this, it leaks... It leaks into Western Europe, it leaks into Eastern Europe, and I think what we're seeing in Georgia now is the absolutely, um, is a scandalous example of how a combination of Russian soft and hard power threatens a country um, where 80% of the people want to join NATO, I mean, so, and where they've been promised that they will join NATO eventually. Now, I was at the Bucharest summit and I think that it was very badly mishandled. I don't think that the um, American administration can go away and say, thank goodness we got that one right when they look at their um, uh, diplomacy in the run up. But we are seeing Russia pushing back hard, not only in Georgia, but all across Eastern Europe. Um, they're doing it particularly with gas. Yeah, it's not just these attacks on Georgia, which are very headline grabbing, but South Street, the um, the which is you really need a map to illustrate this, but the um, Russia is building. We could get a map. I have such confidence in Stanford, I can imagine a map just appear behind um, me. Like, when you're down I, at
2: Google, that'll happen. But I,
1: um, but um, it, the story of the last few years has been an extremely effective gas diplomacy by Russia, principally in Eastern Europe, but also in Western Europe, doing bilateral deals, offering cheap long-term gas contracts, and often, we suspect, some other inducements as well, which, because this talk is being recorded, can't be discussed too openly, which are having a a dramatic effect on the energy landscape in Europe. So, just in the last few months, uh, we've seen Russia signing up Bulgaria, Greece, Serbia and Hungary for its pipeline. To bring gas across the Black Sea into Central Europe, which makes life a lot more difficult and possibly even impossible for the rival European Union pipeline, Nabucca, which aims to connect Turkey, um, because the Central Asian gas is already real, Caspian gas is already reaching um, the east of Turkey, and be- to hook that up through the Balkans to Central Europe, to provide, even if it was only 5% of Europe's um, gas needs, a bit of a, a bit of bargaining leverage. And that just isn't happening. We are being beaten. Time and again on on the gas front. But also, we're seeing Russian money washing through these young democracies in Eastern Europe, buying politicians, buying political parties, buying institutions, sometimes buying whole countries, Montenegro perhaps being the most salient example. Now, (coughs) the EU and the West generally is not able to compete with that very effectively. And actually, it's not just the former captive nations of Eastern Europe. It's happening in Western Europe as well. If I'd sat here six years ago and said that the serving Chancellor of Germany, the someone who sits in, I wouldn't say in, you know, stands in the footsteps of giants like Konrad Adenauer and Willy Brandt and Helmut Schmidt and Helmut Kohl, would in his final weeks in office um, give his blessing to a gas pipeline direct to Russia, which is so threatening to Poland's security. Poland, remember, which is nominally um, Germany's most important eastern ally that the Polish then-Defense Minister calls it the energy version of the molotov ribbentrop pact. And then having signed off on this pipeline, only weeks after leaving office, then takes a lucrative job as chairman of that consortium. You would have thought, I was joking, and you would have thought that Mike's compassion towards an old student, pal of his form, form on hard times, was <laughs> a bit far. <laughs> and who is the economist employing these days? But that's exactly what Gerhard Schroeder did. And that's just one example. You know, They tried to get Bob Evans, former American... Energy Secretary, on the board of Rosneft, and he considered it, yeah, didn't take it in the end. They've also very impudently tried to get Romano Prodi, former Italian Prime Minister and former President of the European Commission, to sit on the board of South Street. And these are just the tips of the iceberg, this Russian money is poured through West. the, the um, Western political and economic systems and we don't really have an answer to it because we feel we've got into the feeling that only money really matters, that capitalism is (coughs) a free zone. And the trouble is that if you believe that only money matters then you are defenceless when people attack you using money. Now, I'm going to finish with a quick um, thought experiment, um, because, which I think is perhaps the most worrying thing of all, uh, on, on why we should mind, and then I'd like to take, um, take, take questions. Just imagine from the, the Third Reich had not ended on the battlefield in 1945, but had tottered on for decades afterwards. Imagine that Hitler died in the early 1950s, just like Stalin died, then maybe we had a... Um, uh, a sort of Khrushchev-style thaw, where the truth about the Holocaust was admitted, but the Nazi Party stayed in power. And we then had a long period of stagnation under a kind of Brezhnev figure, ending in the mid-1980s with a reform Nazi, who you might call Mi- Mikhail Gorbach, <laughs> coming to power and trying to re- reform the Third Reich both politically and economically. And imagine that that fails. Maybe it was just impossible, the Nazi model of economics just didn't work, or maybe it was too late. But one way or other, the Third Reich collapses in 1991, and the captive nations of the Third Reich, who'd been obliterated from the map in the late 1930s, 1940, come back. So yes, so we see again, Austria, the Netherlands, Denmark. These long-forgotten countries, come back, and we get a shrunken version of the Third Reich called the German Federation. The Nazi Party is now in opposition. There are ex-Nazis everywhere, but nobody seems ready to believe in Nazi ideology. And the SS and the Gestapo are not exactly abolished, but at least chopped up and relabeled. And so we would try, no doubt, to help the German Federation, because we'd want it to be stable, we'd want it to be democratic, we'd want it to be a success. And so we'd treat it pretty much as we treated the Russian Federation. And then imagine that it doesn't work out very well. Maybe the economic problems that the German Federation <clears> have inherited are just so daunting. The coal price is very, very low, and of course it's a very coal-dependent economy, just as the um, Russian Federation was dependent on the, on the oil price. And then imagine that in 1999, a former SS colonel called, called him Valdemar Pushnik <laughs> <laughs> becomes first Prime Minister and then President. Now we might feel a bit queasy about that because we might remember the SS was a pretty nasty organisation back in the 30s and was responsible for the deaths of quite a few million people. But we might also try and be kind of hard-headed or grown-up or realistic about it and say, well, Colonel Pushnik was, of course, in the Foreign Intelligence Service of the SS and, of course, he's a different generation and we mustn't be too judgmental about these things. And we might well be right to do it. And that would be pretty much how we treated Putin with his KGB past. And So we'd hoped that he would bring stability and prosperity to the the German Federation. And then imagine that we heard uh, Colonel Pushnik saying the collapse of the Third Reich had been the geopolitical catastrophe of the last century. Well, if we were Dutch or Danish or Polish or French or Czech, we might feel pretty nervous about that. And that's exactly how a lot of people in Eastern Europe felt when they heard Putin say the collapse of, of the Soviet Union was the geopolitical catastrophe of the last century. And then imagine that we hear Colonel Pushnik saying that the Anschluss was legal, the march into the Rhineland was absolutely the right thing to do, and the Munich Agreement, which dismembered Czechoslovakia, was perfectly valid under international law at the time. Because that's how the Poles and the Bolts feel when they hear Putin saying the molotov ribbentrop pact was legal. And then imagine that in a German government newspaper, you'd read that there were no gas chambers at Auschwitz, and the Jews were exaggerating it. We might go go from feeling sort of queasy to actually feeling quite nauseated, or even alarmed, or perhaps even condemnatory. And that's how the Poles feel when they read in Rossiska Gazeta on the 18th of September last year that the Katyn massacre, that classic Stalinist crime, was the work not of the NKVD, as every shred of archival and forensic evidence shows, but was actually the work of the Nazis. And that wasn't just once. It's been on four subsequent occasions in mainstream Russian media. That classic Stalinist combination, first the crime, and then the lie. There's a Visma Gazeta, Komsomolskaya Pravda, TV Center, and most recently on Interfax. And that element in the... Um, of Soviet nostalgia is not just a curiosity. It's deeply threatening <laughs> the countries in Eastern Europe. Because it legitimises all kinds of power grab, power grabs and mischief making on their territory. It is a provides a, 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 a foundation for the worst kind of thinking in Russia. And I'm going to finish with a little sort of an analogy based on colours. I think Putinism is what one might call a red, white, brown coalition. It's a mixture of Soviet nostalgia. Um, a kind of pre-Soviet, sort of czarist, great Russian nostalgia, and a brown street, which is most, I think, exemplified in, for example, the behaviour of Nashik, this sort of thuggish, authoritarian populism, which one could call sort of fascism with a small f. Now, we tend to think, in a sort of optimistic Western way, that the future's orange, that, yeah, this may go on for a bit, but in the end it's going to be all right and Russia will become democratic. Well, I'm not sure that red, white, brown turns to orange. I think it could go black just so easily, you could go orange. And that would be really nasty. And what most worries me um, is that we have so lost our moral authority in the West. We've been so feeble over the last few years that if Putinism runs out of steam, it will, will not be like 1989-1991, no, no, when the one-party state and the planned economy um, <coughs> collapsed. And it seemed absolutely obvious for you. Know, Nine Russians out in very, very few Russians said, let's just restore the Soviet Union. Very few said, let's go back to kind of authoritarianism and you know, feudalism. We need the other possible models. The vast majority said, obviously, the Western system works. Let's do it. If Russians, if when, when Putinism runs into trouble, I'm not sure if Russians look at, say, Berlusconi's Italy. They're going to say, wow, that's the model we need to adopt. And, and particularly if, thing, if, 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 if things are going badly, I think that the, the chances of things getting much worse rather than much better or greater. So I'm going to stop there. I, lo- I could go on for hours more. I'd much rather take some hostile questions. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I want to start with the first question, if I may. Um, yeah. Because it's a question I get asked a lot, and I don't have a good answer. So I want you to give me a better answer, mm. which is some will say, the description of the foreign policy part of your argument and what they're doing uh, with their neighbors is uh, happens no matter what, because these are the Russians. And it has nothing to do with the first part of your talk. Uh, that that is, if it was do- to, to, to oversimplify, Russia behaves in this way because uh, of its size and its history and its culture, and whether it's democratic or autocratic, does not in any way contribute to its foreign policy behavior. How, uh, t- tell us how uh, in your opinion, because you obviously hinted at it, but give us a little more detail about okay, how those
1: I, are interrelated. I, I, I don't believe. And I don't believe that Russia is sort of genetically predisposed to authoritarianism or to empire. And I think that's kind of one of the Czechist myths that we do this because that, that's how we are, and it feeds into what I call the incredible whole school of of, of of foreign policy of don't get me angry, you won't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's so crazy? We don't know what we do, <laughs> and uh, which is which is a card that is often oft, oft, often played in a slightly more subtle form by by Russian diplomats. Um, and I think one one has to s- distinguish between opportunism, manu- manufactured hysterics, and real threats. And I think that the I mean clearly if you are um, a Russian, one of these Russians who has both interests in business and in, and in politics, Moldova looks a pretty soft, soft target, and it's you can quite see why they might try to use Transnistria as a, as a as a money laundering place and also to um, try to you know, make it a country that you, you know, is, is never going to join the EU or NATO is kind of good. If you are cross about Kosovo, um, Abkhazia is quite a good place to show how cross you are, and to some extent this may not be. Part of a um, you worked out plan to topple the Saakashvili regime. It may just be an example of a chance <coughs> to, to, to do some posturing. Um, but you know, when it comes to NATO expansion, I think that the the idea that um, you know, which was much stated in Russia in the 1990s that if the Bolts join NATO, that's it. You know, you just you, it's going to be complete disaster. You, you're really not going to like it. And in fact, the balks join NATO and. Everything proceeded as it is before, and it was entirely, it was in all hysterics from the, from the Russian side, which is actually logical, because when you think about it, surely it's in Russia's interest to have um, prosperous and stable neighbours. Why should Russia want anything different? And if you look at the possible threats to Russia, there are two very big ones, and one begins with C and it has a population seven times the size of Russia's, heavily concentrated in um, regions of the next... Are you very, testing
2: us again? Very, <laughs> yeah. But
1: well, we're not supposed uh, to say... <laughs> and, and, and I'm not... And, 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 yes, so it's, so chi- China is a real problem and it's one of the paradoxes that Putin sort of flirts with China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, whereas Andrei Pionkovsky has so beautifully pointed out an alliance between Russia and China is like an alliance between a rabbit and a boa constrictor. And, and the other big problem is is, is Muslims, you yeah, the Muslim growth rate in Russia, much higher than the Slav-Russian birth, birth rate, um, uneasy relations with Central Asia, very uneasy relations with the North Caucasus, um, and Iran, you know, if, if Iran does develop inter- intermediate-range nuclear missiles, they'll hit um, Russia a long time before they hit um, Europe or America. So, yeah, I think that the, you know, those, the, those are the, the real threats, and I and I think and I argue this quite strongly that Russia actually belongs in what one might call the greater west which is sort of you know, the, the greater west being sort of advanced industrialized um, more or less democracies who have all sorts of um, all sorts of common interests um, and the idea that we should be that they should see Georgia as a major security threat is preposterous from, from an energy security point of view it's in their interest to try and destabilize Georgia because Georgia is a key link in that Caspian energy corridor and if they can um, you know, make Georgia into another Armenia or make you know, that, that you know, where they pull the strings that would make it very difficult that would mean that they back, back in Japan the old pipeline wouldn't um, be such a bargaining lever as it is at the moment against the CPC which is the other pipeline. And, um, and and our gas plants be started, so I can see it's sort of in their interest. But I, I, I think that the kind of the grandiloquent, way in which they talk about it
2: is nonsense. Excellent. I'll start keeping a, a list, and if you could introduce yourself uh, before your question, I have Catherine and John first. Okay. I'm Catherine Swinerway. I'm a senior researcher here at FSI and CDDRL, and um, associate director for research at CDDRL. Um, so. I apologize for shouting in your face. It's just so people can, <laughs> <laughs> can hear me. Um, so what does going badly mean exactly, and what is a scenario for Putinism to collapse? And um, how should we be responding to Russia right now? So really I'm sneaking in two questions, because the how should we okay. respond is may or may not be related to the possible collapse. Do you want to take
1: a lunch, Mike? Uh, lunch, let's right go.
2: We'll, we'll start bunching at the end. So okay. Let's go one-on-one well, for um, a while.
1: In in terms of of, things going badly, I don't know. We'll we'll know when we see it, but, I I mean, I think we we, we see a lot of Yeah, I'm sorry. In terms of things going badly, um, we'll know when we see it, but I think, I mean, one thing that I find very alarming is the level of racist murders in Russia and the way in which the police don't seem to take it seriously And to some extent that that some of the people perpetrating these murders seem to have, or (coughs) anti-immigrant violence, seem to have a degree of official backing. It seems to be astonishing that the movement against immigration is allowed to have a big march in Moscow when the gay parade isn't allowed to happen at all because it's a threat to public order. And the activities of Miesk, which is one of the sort of, it's sort of worse than nashy, um youth groups of round, you know, are, are organizing honey traps for illegal immigrants who are then arrested and then beaten up um, by the police seems to be a you know, nasty point. So, I mean, something in that direction is about. The other thing I worry about is just instability. That you know, I think the this Putin um, Medvedev duopoly of power is quite unstable, and I was talking to a very um, res- well-respected Russian journalist the other day who said she thought the likelihood is that one of them would end up being killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said it was a completely straight face, I thought, and I, I, um, I, I like making alarmist predictions, but I hadn't make, made that one. Um, in terms of how we react, um, I think that's, you know, that's much easier to look at. The first thing we've got to do is to sort out um, the question of access to our capital markets. Because this is what these—I pho- don't like calling them companies—but these phony parastatal commercial entities like Gazprom, Lukov um, and no, Gazprom-Rosneft, particularly, they need access to Western capital markets. Um, they need it because they want to borrow money. And Rus- Russian companies borrowed a hundred billion dollars last year. That has to be rolled over this year. Um, they want to do IPOs. They want stock market listings. And we've been incredibly lax so far about letting them use our capital mm-hmm. markets. So when I mean, Deripaska said this very bluntly. He wants to. Li- I mean, Deripaska, remember, who for reasons that can't be stated in public can't get an American visa, and he said, "Well, if the Americans won't let me list Rusal in um, in uh, in New York, well, I'll list it in London. If I can't list it in London, I'll list it in Hong Kong." So there's kind of a race to the bottom in capital markets, where companies that don't pass the smell test in one place go to somewhere where the financial regulators have a clothes peg on their nose and then say they don't smell anything bad. We've seen this again and again and again. And if I, if I turned up with a suitcase full of stolen Fabergé eggs or Kandinsky canvases that I swiped from some someone in, in, in Russia and turned up in London and said I need a banker to help me sell these, a lawyer to make it look good, an accountant to do the books and a PR firm, Um, to help um, all the wheels. I think even now in the city of London, someone might call security. If I turn up with a (laughs) stolen oil company, one which has defrauded Western shareholders, even outside the Russian ones, Western shareholders of $17 billion of their money, and I then want to have an IPO, and you have Ilarionov saying this is a crime against the Russian people, you have even George Soros, who's not my... Favourite moral weather vane on these things, but you know, even he saying, um, This is absolutely disgusting, it should be boycotted. And they're queuing up. You know, the, 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 the most respectable banks in London are queuing up to do the IPO, the most respectable law firms. Or take Ros Energo, a company which, again, we have to be careful because we're on the record here, but a company which has gone from zero assets to four billion in the space of three years. Just look at that. It's on their website, uh, which owns no gas fields, no gas pipelines, no gas storage. Its only asset is its political connections in Turkmenistan, Russia, and Ukraine. And those $4 billion have come from somewhere, and they've come from the citizens and taxpayers of Ukraine, Turkmenistan, and Russia, and to some extent from the shareholders of Gazprom. And who defends, who who conceals the beneficial ownership of Rozhuk Enogom? Reifheisenbank. And who does their books? Coopers, And they don't see anything wrong in that. So, th- so this is where we have to start. We have to start by making our system work as it's supposed to. And that does two things very important. It, def- it defends us, and it also sets a little example to the Russians. And it, it neutralizes the Burles- their argument, which is, look at Berlusconi. You're just the same as us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. John. Yeah. Uh, and since you've already answered part of my question, but I'll a- ask it anyway, um, five days from now, Uh, Mr. Medvedev is scheduled to become uh, President. The following day, according to many reports, uh, Mr. Putin will become Prime Minister. And you addressed a little bit the relationship between the two. Uh, There are a number of commentators that Russia have talked about the way of last year, dual power, hierarchy, uh, that there could be some tension there. Mr. Satarov spoke about it just yesterday on EJ.RU and so on. So I was wondering, how do you see this dynamic between these two leaders working out? What are your ideas on that? Mm
1: -hmm. I just don't know. The question is the putin medvedev relationship. And I think I'm, I'm not saying in this book that everything Putin has done is wrong. And I think that the decision not to stand again um, even if it's uh, a kind of slightly phony, mm-hmm. um, because maybe he's going to, yeah, maybe he'll be back in the Kremlin within a year, or maybe the president will become a symbolic presidency. But at least he did respect the constitution. He didn't go down the Lukashenko, Karimov, Turkmenbashi route. And I think one has, you know, even even his critics, we have to say that was the, that was a good thing to do. This was by far the less. You know, there were people in the Kremlin like Svetchenko who were saying ignore all that, just go ahead and do it, you know, keep, because, I, mean, I mean, I had a wonderful description of what the Kremlin is the other day, which is, the Kremlin is, is a machine, machine for stealing natural resources from Siberia and putting the money in the West, and, it, you know, it's <laughs> been a, a wonderfully lucrative ride for the top people in the Kremlin over the last few years, and a lot of them just wanted it to continue, never mind anything else, and Putin didn't listen to them, you know, he's done something which some of the nastiest people in Russia don't like, and that's good. Now, whether it's sustainable, whether it's—and as I say, we don't know whether we're watching Casablanca or Gone with the Wind—and mm-hmm. maybe this is the bit in Casablanca where Rick pretends um, to be in league with the Nazis in order to do something, something else. We don't know. You know, it's—it's it's, so, so, so. I mean, let's let's, let's you know, look in a year, mm-hmm. but let's give him a, at least some credit because. Although Medvedev's rhetoric is very patchy, yeah. at least some of the things he's saying are right. I mean, I, 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 it's very useful for people who want to criticize the way things are in Russia to have, you know, theoretically the most important person in Russia saying that the system is marked by unparalleled legal nihilism. Mm-hmm.
4: You
1: know, when the International Bar Association said that in their report on the Russian, um, the Russian legal system two or three years ago, that was useful, that was coming from an outside body. You know, now, you know, our diagnosis at least is being shared, whether that leads to um, all the other things we need, I don't know, but it's, I mean, that, that, that chink of, of, of rhetoric is at least, is at least, um, well. I have you I next, yes.
4: Yours is already covered? Yeah. Okay,
2: yeah. okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, Lucas? Uh,
4: I'm Lucas Silvis. I'm an undergraduate honors student in CEDRL. So given the, there's been a sort of dark scenario that's been painted of what might happen in Eastern Europe, effectively all the countries between Germany and Russia become sort of areas of Kremlin soft power. And the general proposed reaction to that is that the West has to work as hard as possible, Western to the EU to integrate these countries fully into the EU to make sure that any core Europe really includes the Baltics, includes Poland, includes Hungary, etc. At the same time, from the Kremlin's perspective, and leave aside the question of whether that's in Russian foreign policy interests, that does go against their interests. It does threaten their control there. Uh, and if I were a smart thinker in the Kremlin, I would actually try to work against that as hard as possible. So If I were to go about trying to, as an Eastern European country, link myself more closely with Western Europe, uh, how would I do so without getting the Kremlin to overreact?
1: Right. Uh, Well, I I don't agree. I mean, I think the the Kremlin has been remarkably (coughs) unsuccessful in blocking EU expansion. And perhaps the sharpest point came with Lithuania, where they were demanding all sorts of things in return for, as they put it, Lithuania being allowed to join the European Union. And they wanted you know, Schengen visas for everyone in Kaliningrad and various other things. And in the end, they, did, they, they basically got nothing um, of the stupid things they wanted, and the sensible things were all negotiated quite, quite satisfactorily. So I don't I, I, I think that they. Um, I don't think that the Czech. I mean, A, I think that the sort of Czechist regime, and the Kremlin, doesn't really understand the European Union. What it understands is using bilateral political relationships to get what it wants. And whenever it's confronted with a multilateral organisation that tries to do something, it just identifies a powerful country in that multilateral organisation with with, with wish it has some pull and then says, for example, to Germany, you want this or we want that, so please make sure that the WTO or whatever stops insisting on points A, B and C. And this always works very well. Um, But I, I think you're right that what would be very bad for the countries of, of, of Eastern Europe, the new member states, would be a two-speed Europe. And that's why it's very important that Slovakia now seems that it's going to be able to join the Euro. We need more countries in the Euro so that the Euro doesn't become a kind of core within the, within the EU. But I think the fundamental problem is that, from an East European point of view, both the EU and NATO are broken. They don't work anymore because when you are facing an existential threat from Russia, they don't come to your aid. Where was NATO during the bronze soldier um, riots in Tallinn? Where is the EU now when Lithuania is, for 18 months, Lithuania and Latvia have been facing an oil blockade from Russia with the closure of the Druzhba pipeline, supposedly for repairs. they said, we'll pay for the repairs. We don't care how expensive are, We need that oil for our refineries, because you know, the refineries at the end of the oil pipeline. And the Russians said absolutely bluntly to Lithuanians, sorry guys, you sold the refinery to the wrong people. Yeah, if you sold it to Nucol, we'd send you oil. You sell it to Poles, you don't get oil. Yeah, that's a, a classic case of monopoly, um, you know, abuse of monopoly power. And the EU has been completely hopeless on this. And, you know, so, from, so I think as yeah, so long as Germany is, as I put it, rather provocatively, Finlandised, as yeah, so long as Germany is, cares more about Russia than it does about its normal allies in Eastern Europe, none of those two organisations are working. And that's why, quite interestingly, the Latvians... Um, who, as they always say, have a combined population together with America of 290 million. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the Latvians have just upped their troop commitment to Afghanistan, because they're very keen. They, they, it's the one, thing, the one thing we've got left is our bilateral relationship with America. And so we just have to really hang on to that and do anything we can um, to help. But it's, it's tricky. You know, it's, they're, they're in a difficult position. I have Natasha next.
0: And I think we shared our opinion. I believe that Russia is using gas as a foreign policy tool to reassert dominance of the former Soviet Union through its gas pricing policies. Um, now, I'm just curious, why is the concept of rational profit maximization so difficult to believe? Especially since, I mean, why should Russia subsidize the former Soviet Union? And isn't it hypocrisy for Europe to cry foul when Russia removes those subsidies even as it demands Russia to remove domestic subsidies?
1: Right, excellent question. Um, I think you... Um, what, Stanford Sorry? <laughs> <undergraduate. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> the, the question is, isn't Russia really just acting rationally in its gas policy? You, I mean, how, how big is the political gap um, between what we see and what could be explained by simple market uh, behavior of a market actor? And isn't Europe being hypocritical in criticizing the, the hikes um, experienced by former Soviet republics. Why should Russia subsidise them? Well, I agree. I think it, I mean, it's very good for Ukraine that the gas price is going up, and it's been very bad for Ukraine that they've been dependent on these ridiculously low gas prices for so long, because it, make, it helps keep their economy very inefficient. The question is how you do it, and the, and I think particularly the way that Georgia was treated and Moldova was treated don't fall into any kind of political... Um, political category, and that was an absolutely clear, and wasn't just gas, it was a, a clear embargo on Georgia on a whole range of things, which cost Russian, Russians money. You know, the Russian um, and, um, and, and Moldova is such a small gas consumer, it doesn't really count. But I'm um, really explicable that way as well. And I think if you go to the FOI.se website, there's a study by Robert Larson of Political, and he's listed 40 um, threatened or actual gas cut-offs with a, political, um, with, a, with, with a political dimension. Some of them um, are yeah, a, a more significant than others. Um, I think the, the, the real point about gas is that it's, it's, gas is a natural monopoly. Once you've built one pipeline, it's difficult to make the commercial ca- case of building another. So therefore, you can't have gas, e- even in a free Western liberal, liberalised economy, you need to have some kind of framework about who has access to the gas pipelines, and in the Energy Charter, which Russia signed in 1994, um, was a provision, a very important provision, that there should be third, neutral, third-party access to the Russian gas pipeline system, which would mean that if, say, a German company wants to buy gas from Novatek, for example, or from Turkmenistan or wherever, then you can negotiate, and the, and the gas pipeline is like a road; it's a common carrier, and anyone can. You can go across it. This would also have very, another very important effect that Russia flares 15 billion cubic metres of gas a year, which is an astonishing amount, very bad from a carbon point of view, because the, because Gazprom doesn't like the competition. This is gas that's flared by oil companies, independent producers and, 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 and others. And the gas pipeline system is run as such an inefficient monopoly that that gas doesn't get into the system where it could be used. There's absolutely scandalous, and there's a very good. When, if you, um, it's, it's forthcoming. That i um, highly recommended Marshall Goldman's book, mm. State, goes into this in, in 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 considerable in considerable detail. And he's
2: forthcoming here on Monday. Well, yeah. well ask, <laughs> Same row Same row
1: same, same seat. Oh, I'm sure you'll get an even bigger, an even bigger audience. Your audience can't. So he's a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah, but this, this question of uh, so, so it's, it's it's tremendously important to make sure the gas pipelines operate in a proper um, in a transparent and liberal environment because otherwise they create it instantly creates a monopoly and, um, and what Russia is doing is intensifying it because what we, we, what we need to do is diversify and have at least some at least one east-west gas pipeline that's not controlled um, by effectively the Kremlin because the Gazprom is the gas division of Kremlin Inc and you know, Nabucca and, and, and Russia is doing everything it can to try and make sure that Nabucca doesn't get built Sultan. Uh, Sultan
3: The the Russian uh, Ministry of Economic Development and Trade recently released its its forecast. It's very conservative, and it suggests that uh, Russia's population will go down from 142 million last year to about 133 in 2030. And of course, there are much more dire forecasts. uh, by Russian NGOs and, and Uh there is an agreement, however, that the uh, the population that will be most affected by this will be the uh, the working uh, age population, from something like nine to seventy-five. If so I was, um, I was wondering what you thought of the uh, the economic and and uh, security implications that this may have, and and just a second, very quick question. You said, and I agree with you, obviously, that the Russians are not wired to be authoritarian, and I was just wondering how you might explain that uh, a majority of of young Russians under 35 have uh, positive views of Stalin, or that uh, something like 40% of the Russian population uh, uh,
1: attaches no value to uh, basic democratic rights like freedom of speech and so on. Well, let me answer the second question first. I think one of the terrible, and I outline this in the book, is that the 1990s, have left many Russians feeling um, particularly uh, that the we tried democracy and it didn't work that democracy allowed the country to be looted um, and humiliated and the benefits um, didn't seem that great, and, in, and, and you know, there's all these jokes about democracy and privatization, which is shitocracy, so democracy. And um, so I'm allowed like to say that. I know I'm very careful about using the bad language. Um, so, so I think, you know, and, and I think also that the, you know, the Kremlin propaganda machine has stoked that up, and it's one of the sort of great tropes of, of, of the sort of Chechis propaganda that Russia is a besieged fortress um, surrounded by malevolent hypocrites and the you end know, that sacrifices are necessary and that, that you know we saw that very clearly in Putin's Beslan speech but it's it's a sort of you know very so, so I think you know, to some extent the Kremlin propaganda has worked you can also find um, other more encouraging things I, mean, I think 70 percent of Russians think that um, they want to have good relations with the European Union, for example. And, you know, opinion polling is, you, you can find lots of opinion polls that will be either comforting or alarming depending on what you want. In the book I've quoted a lot of the alarming ones, but there are some comforting ones as well. Um, so th- th- I, that, that's um, uh, my answer on, on that. Um, on the um, what's your first question? Demography.
2: Demography. demography. Yeah,
1: demo- I mean, demography is really worrying. But remember, everybody's in the same boat. Russia does not have the worst demogra- demography in the former Soviet Union. You know, Georgia is an even worse situation, and Bulgaria actually is in very bad situation. So if you look at there's also you can find this on, on the web, but there's you know a lot of countries are going to be. So, I mean, Russia may be get maybe may weak, are uh, getting weaker demographically. Um, the countries that at least. Perhaps are going to be threatened by Russia, are getting weaker as well. And you, you, know, you have to go to Poland before you find, you find a country with, with really strong demographics. Um, Estonia is in an extremely, extremely poor position. What makes it um, perhaps more troubling from a Russian point of view is if you are sort of Slav, you know, ethnic Slav Russian chauvinist, that the birth rate in Muslim families is much higher than the birth rate in Slav families. And so at the moment, I think something like twenty twenty percent of the, pop, the Russian population is. Um, not ethnically Russian. If you look at the under-20s, it's much higher. And you know, going forward, that's, that, that, that you know, will ring, ring some alarm bells on, 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 on that front. But I, th- I think the fundamental point is that even even with a population of 120 million and you know, an army half the size, Russia is still jolly threatening for you know, small countries around its midst. And as I say in the book, if you're in a wheelchair, a guy on crutches can be quite a threat. Um, Do you see the formation of a gas supplier's cartel, like OPEC, headed by Russia? And if so, what will be the implications for Russia's relation with the European Union, with the Moscow Wars and with China and Japan? This is really interesting, Something to watch out for this summer, because OPEC, the organization of gas-exporting countries, (laughs) has its next meeting in Moscow in, I think, next month? Now, I mean, clearly, gas is not like oil in that you can't have um, a simple, a <coughs> simple producers cartel because it's not traded in the same in the same way. Um, some people are very blasé about this, very sanguine. They say, "Yeah, nothing, yeah, nothing can possibly go wrong." Your what? Your was. I, wrong. I'm not going to. I can't. Yeah, you know, it's like Churchill said: never attack your own country when you're abroad. And. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I can't comment about the economists' um, line on this, and I'm not the energy correspondent. Uh, it's possible to argue that nothing much is going to happen because every country that sells gas has its own interest and is never going to allow other countries to um, dictate. I, I'm not quite as as that. I think there's, there's two things where OGEC um, could be quite a threat. One is in the European thing, in the European area, that if Russia does deals with Algeria and Libya, um, that... and coupled with its relationships with the big energy companies inside Europe, like ENI, that all helps entrench its um, monopoly and weakens Europe's chance of diversifying into LNG. And For example, you can imagine the EU in some meeting in a couple of months or a couple of years' time saying that we, we need to put some serious EU money into LNG terminals, and the Italians saying no, we don't think that's a good idea. Why? Because there's a lot of gas not only from Russia but from Libya. And that the OGET decision is to try and discourage the building of more LNG capacity in, in Europe. Secondly, on LNG, um, it would be good from the point of diversification if we had a spot market. In LNG, most LNG is traded on long-term contracts. Most LNG producers would like it that way, but that would be another key thing for um, which OGEC could work on just to stop that happening. So I don't think it's going to be dramatic, but I do think that it's it's it, it's it's troubling. I'm not sure there's very much we can we can do about it because I said as I said, gas is inherently a monopolistic business.
2: I Have you next? Yeah. Hi, my name is
4: Emily Singer. Uh, I'm an undergrad. Um, double major in Slavic studies and economics. And I was wondering if you would um, comment a little bit on the legitimacy of NATO. Um, you just described it as a broken organization um, and Russia as feeling like a besieged fortress.
0: <laughs> if that's
4: the case, why is it that it's sort of okay for um, the former satellites to be joining NATO? Isn't that just an aggressive and sort of meaningless um,
1: okay. Well, I, t- I totally disagree with that. Um, I think that the... And one has to start off from the... Go back to nineteen nineteen. Who would have thought in 1990, when we were in the high heydays of Gorbachev and Nazi that any of the, wars, the, you know, as the Warsaw Pact was collapsing? Um, and we faced a bright new future in the common European house. Who would have thought that anyone would want to join NATO? In fact, it didn't even seem as NATO was going to be needed anymore. And then, if you then look at what happened, and what to me was absolutely crucial, was the the Russian foot-dragging over getting the troops out of the Baltic states. Now, you could have imagined a future in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where the new government would say, right, all troops back to barracks, um, they're, you know, small arms only, and we're going to bring them home as soon as we can find the housing. Instead of which, you saw this extraordinary, sinister foot drag, we can't take our troops out of the Baltic states because, A, it's our historic sphere of influence, B, they're needed to protect the local, quote, Russian minority, unquote, and C, we just don't feel like it. Um, and, you know, immediately... And followed by Primakov's famous remark in 1993 that it would be impermissible for the um, East European countries to join NATO. And as soon as that happened, first of all, these countries started thinking we'd better join while well, we still can. You know, how is it? I'm mean, just going back to my analogy of the Third Reich collapsing. If you imagine you know, the Netherlands back on the map in 1991, 92, and then the German Federation saying. Well, hang on a moment. We have a lot of German settlers who've been in the Netherlands over the last few years. We want German as an official official language in the Netherlands. We think we're going to keep some German bases in the Netherlands for the foreseeable future. And don't those those Dutch better not... It's completely impermissible for those Dutch to join a security alliance with Britain. After the way that the the satellite countries have been treated, they have every right to determine their own security future. And I think it's a big question for Russians. Why is it that these countries are so scared of you now, you know, isn't, shouldn't that give people in the Kremlin pause for thought? And the, and the more you get this you know, bullying and mischief-making as well, I mean, all the interference that's been in these countries, um, politics, both political and um, also through economic means, has also stoked that. So, you know, and we now see, we didn't know then that, that NATO was going to be so broken. I suspect if we were, if we were presented now with NATO post-Germany, you know, post-Schroeder and post um, and with Steinmeier, people might think, oh, you know, perhaps it's not that good. But still, there is, in the end, there's the Article 5. Um, there's Article 5 is there. There is the... You know, if, you know, in, at least in some circumstances, NATO may come to your defence. And after you see what's happening to Georgia, don't let anybody say, oh, it's only a theoretical threat. No, thank goodness we got the Baltic States into NATO when we did. If we hadn't, they'd be fight three little Georgians. And we'd be seeing exactly the same games with them now, and we'd be thinking, "Oh dear, we can't bring them into Georgia because it's too provocative. We bring them into NATO because it's too provocative." So, I, I think from a, from a Russian point of view, it's 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 almost nauseating to hear, you know, from the particularly people with a with a with a communist or state security background, um, who are the you who've know, never apologised for the things that their organisations did in these countries within very much living memory. For them now. To be saying to country, these countries, um, we don't like what you're doing, we don't like your security choices, we don't like your political economic system, I think is, 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 is actually outrageous. And I wish we'd expanded NATO a bit faster when we could. Mm-hmm. And the other point to make about NATO expansion is, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's good, you know, one of Russia's big complaints is that Sakshvili is nuts. Now, I wish that Sakshvili was less impetuous, had a bigger circle of advisors, had a stronger smell smell test when it comes to um, some ethical things that go on in Georgia. But one of the great things about NATO is it puts all sorts of quite demanding obligations. I remember what the Baltic armed forces were like in the early 1990s. Excitable citizen militias (laughs) run by by some pretty strange characters um, who you could imagine, had things gone wrong, might have been um behaving quite badly either towards local russians or indeed towards russia itself and one of the great things about nato membership was all that was sorted out you, you now have small well-disciplined armies that do useful things in places like afghanistan which is actually a benefit from russia too because it's, no, it's no it's not in russia's interest that the taliban's going to win in um yeah, the taliban wins in afghanistan so anyway i could go on for hours about this but i'll stop there okay.
0: One um, sort of the great achievements of the Gorbachev and Yeltsin periods um, that has been undermined mm. in recent years has been precisely like the spread of Glasnost the recognition of what happened historically, opening up issues like vodka, shop, and Yeah. Ribbentrop, and all of these other episodes of discussion and the beginnings of. Um, not only a recognition of mm. what the truth of that history had been, but even mm. the beginnings of an effort to apologize for it, including Katyn yeah. um, and Malta, Shot and so mm. on. Um, and it seems to me that that also was connected with a very different foreign policy in which the whole potential for salt power in Eastern Europe, uh, other you know, satellites, was greater. Mm. Um, to what extent do you see a connection between this? In effect, cultural counter revolution, one might almost call it this effort to close off the discussion and revert back to a very untruthful account of the past and the glorification of Russia. So, how is that linked to Russian foreign policy, and does it go with the idea that they've given up on? Attracting others through soft power, and simply intend to use
1: their their economic and other yeah. weight to coerce. Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think they are interconnected, and you know, if you, um, you know, the more and you know, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say that Putin glorifies Stalin. He said critical things about about Stalin, um, but he also relativizes. Stalin so he says yeah sure he was bad but you know, yeah, I think he says the, the gulag was bad but so was Hiroshima so it's like kind of well, we all made mistakes back in the 30s and 40s and our mistakes are certainly not the worst which is, uh, which is quite a convenient sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of letter but you know, I, I, mean, I think that, that, that Stalinism is the, the big question, how you deal with Stalinism is the big question um, both in terms of Russian, um, internal Russian politics and externally because if you can get over you know, and actually I'd say Lenin was just as bad, but, um, in that kind of you know, lenin stalin terror, um, which put the, you know, put the secret police so much in the um, um, forefront of things, that if you can get over that, then you can have a normal relationship with your, with your neighbours. Um, but if you can't, it's, it's, it's re- if you believe the Molotov rubentrop Pact was legal, go to YouTube and Google Putin and look at the press conference where an Estonian journalist asking the very simple question, why is it so difficult for you to apologize, molotov ribbentrop And Putin gives this really interesting, and if you don't speak Russian, get some to translate it for you, really interesting sort of four or five minute answer which gives kind of the Putin version of history. And it goes, and he says, in 1918, um, Russia collapsed and gave some territories into the German sphere. influence in 1940, we got them back again. In that, yeah, he says it slightly more elaborately than that, but that's his... Yeah, and then in in, in 1991, you know, um, we gave them independence as the Soviet Union dissolved. And if you see, you know, the Baltic republics, for example, as um, former Russian territories that were under German influence, then back in the Soviet Union quite legally, which had now been given given independence, then from a Russian point of view, you can feel, what what the hell are they doing? I mean, these are basically ours. Um, If you... You know, take a different version of history. Um, you know, it doesn't look like that at all. So, so I think you're absolutely right. This is absolutely fundamental. It's, it, and I, but I, go to, I have a whole chapter on this in, in the book, which, I'll, by the way, is on sale outside. <laughs> I've got, in, in the chapter called "The New Tsarism: What Makes Russia's Leaders Tick."
2: so we are coming to the end and we want to make sure everybody has a time to what buy a book a question. No, no, we, there's some I'm a, I, I, I see their hands up so um but here's what we're going to do we're going to bunch questions now if you if you will we're going to take about five and then we're going to end okay so sir you've been very patient and if you still had a question i'll let this dudes I'll, I'll do okay right all right so i have you next time mozima over here and then the two gentlemen in the back that's and that i think will be it
0: Okay, I'm Bill Lennie, the uh, DLCO, and my question is, uh, in your book and speech today, you seem to characterize the development of Russian society and economy under Putin as going downhill, the weakening through in the infrastructure, false economic numbers, etc., and how the political situation there is going to with the potential putin in uh, conflict. But at the same time, you present Russia as strong, a huge threat in the nation, the explorer of explorers, of countries, oil politics. <clears throat> you know, and so forth, and even call the current lay of the uh, national relations as the war. Yeah, like like Well, it seems to me there's a contradiction and, uh, between Russia's being weak, weak and Russia's being strong simultaneously mm-hmm. um, in the of events. Is, is there a way to reconcile this, perhaps, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. am I reading this wrong?
2: Okay, great. Uh, Nozima. Yes. Um, back to the NATO summit this year. Uh, mm-hmm.
4: So this year, Uzbekistan was the present by the Karimov uh, at the NATO summit. And uh, how would you uh, comment this his presence from the Western uh, policy of, uh, point of view? And do you think it's a challenge from uh, from Uzbekistan to Russia, mm-hmm. uh, because it was the uh, you know last three years the first uh, political initiative from the, uh, Uzbekistan to the Western?
2: Mm-hmm. From Uzbekistan. Uh, just, uh, uh, this gentleman, this gentleman, and you get the last question. Yeah. So
4: I was a graduate student at Stanford University, and I'm from Poland. My company actually won the bid against the blue oil in the Lithuanian refinery you were, you were talking yeah. about. And, you know, I observed that increased gas and blue oil activity both in, in, in Europe, Central Asia, and Africa in the mm-hmm. last six months. And my question would be... Uh, what should be the policy of European Union, especially when we see both Germany and Italy strongly supporting, you know, Russians' efforts, mm. how, how, do you, uh, how do you think European Union should align the policy against everything that we see happening in, from the Russian yeah. side? Sir? Sure. Yeah, so I just want to make one sentence Make two. <laughs> I I'm, was I'm reading economist for quite a well while, and I really like it. Uh, I really like the analytical you know, nature of the economist. But at the same time, I was always wondering why it's so russophobic, because in my <laughs> humble opinion, now I think I understand why. <laughs> my <laughs> question. Uh, yes, sir, yeah, yeah. The question I have here is, uh, you seem to imply that uh, you know election in Russia became worse in but. You know, I, I don't
2: think he implied I think he said it, yeah. actually. <laughs> I
4: don't understand why, you know, election 2000 or even 96 was bad Because, you know, Putin was hand by Yeltsin. You know, Yeltsin resigned ahead of time to, essentially, to help Putin. Sure, yeah, thank and you. so on. In 96, you know, the coverage, media coverage of the election was extremely biased Yeah. So how it was
3: organized. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so
2: don't know. Know. Okay, great, and finally, last question. My mm-hmm.
0: um, my question is contrary. Uh, I was wondering why the West um, chose political expediency from the beginning of the bloody Putin come coming to the power. Why there is no uh, independent um, commission for? Uh, investigation of such acts of the uh, the apartment building blowings in 1999 and what about Chechnya uh, which is uh, most genocidal policies are tolerated
3: okay okay
2: <laughs> the full right spectrum my- of ideas um, there
1: let me take them in um, in reverse mm-hmm. reverse order um, yeah I mean I you know I, I've written this book because i 'm upset about what 's happening, and there 's quite a lot in it about the apartment bombings, but other people have written at much greater length, like David, David Satter for example um, and you know, I, I, mean, I think my fundamental point is the West is in not in any great position to have much moral authority at the moment, so you know, when the, um, the, the, when we get our own act together more, then perhaps we can speak with more, um, uh, more effect on the, um, the, the uh, uh, criticizing of others. Um, I absolutely agree. And I, I was just trying to find the, the place in the book where I say that 1996 was really a turning point. So that was when you... I mean, in fact, I as it goes, goes before, I'd say I think the, the referendum on the Constitution was rigged, um, And yeah, but the va- I've got somewhere in the book the phrase the virus of vote rigging entered Russian politics. And I also say the Russian media sold itself for that. And, and if you'd be not to me, and it's easy for me to say, I, don't, I mean, as an economist journalist, but I think it would be better if you'd gone off and won mm-hmm. and then screwed up. And then, you know, we'd have had, then somebody else would come in. But I mean, we were so panicky about the communists coming back that we sacrificed Russian democracy in order to um, keep what we thought was going to be, you know, Yeltsin. And in fact, by then, the sort of Yeltsin 2.0 with Kozakoff and all the rest of it was much less good than the sort of Yeltsin 1.0 that we, we remember. So, so I agree. And I, so I, I wouldn't say that this election, you know, was, was the 2008 election worse than the 2008 the 1996 election. I suppose the difference is that in the, the the media slanted the coverage in 1996 not on anybody's instructions and they, they genuinely believed it. Most of my Russian journalist friends did it in the feeling they were choosing the lesser evil, whereas on this election you know, the instructions were coming very directly from the top. So I suppose there's a subtle difference there. But I, am argue, I, mean, I do say that you know, all the bad things we're seeing now have their roots in the yesterday, I'm not saying at all. It was <coughs> it went went from white to black. Um, on uh, on Gazprom, yeah, I mean the Gazprom is is, is an arm of Kremlin foreign policy, and um, it's very worrying seeing um, yeah, its activities in countries in countries overseas. So, sir, before you go, the, oh, <laughs> I, I would say, excuse me, just one more thing. That don't think I write all the Russia stuff. I haven't written a story in Ru- about Russia in the Economist for six years, our current bureau chief is actually a Russian citizen. And he's much tougher on them than I am, so don't think it's just me. <laughs> um, um, yes, yeah, so, so Gaz- it's really worrying, and I, I, I don't think we really have an answer to it, because we, 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 we assume that companies are basically politically neutral. Our system doesn't really have a way of dealing with these sort of parastatal entities that have both a monopolistic business, but also a political agenda. Um, So, answers on a postcard, please, to um, President Obama, via Mr. (laughs) (laughs) McFaul, Dr. (laughs) McFaul. Uzbekistan um, is a huge challenge. I mean, we've had every possible policy on Uzbekistan in the space of about three years, ranging from turning massive blind eyes to very bad things, through to having perhaps disproportionate moral outrage, usually coming from the same same politicians without any appearance of contradiction. So, so if I was in the spec, I'd be very confused about what the Western policy really is. Um, I think that basically we have to have that sort of two-tier policy, where we say, you know, there is a category of countries which are basically family, and we have warm, kind of, you know, values-based relations with, and you know, we treat you, there's another category of countries who we have hard-headed Um, perfectly friendly and practical relations with. But we we know your system is different from ours, and there's a lot about your your system that we don't like. Um, And we're not going to soft-pedal that, but it's just not going to stop us dealing with it. I I think Russia should be in the second category, not in the first, which is why I'm saying we should suspend Russia from the Council of Europe. Um, There are lots of countries that we don't like, that we deal with on a very regular basis, and one of them is Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, So if we can deal with Saudi Arabia, why can't we deal with Uzbekistan? Uh, I'd say that probably Uzbekistan is slightly less bad than Saudi Arabia when it comes to human rights, but I would And no. um, finally, on your, your question on strong versus weak, and this is the, the, I mean, this is the big point of the book, that you know, Russia's become a lot richer. Okay, $400 billion in the stabilisation fund, huge hot foreign reserves, um, basically no shortage of money to do anything they want. That's a clear difference in the answer to it. Has that money been well spent? No, so far. Tens of billions of dollars just stolen, infrastructure, public services, demography—all all still bad. Does Russia screw up? Yes, all the time. Look at the Orange Revolution—you know, classic, I mean, massive foreign, foreign policy blunder by Russia. Does that mean that they never get what they want? No, because in other places they've been—they've been quite successful. So you have—you have to sort of you know, Russia as a single word is missing break it down into strands. How efficient is Gazprom in, as a business? Answer: Not very. How good is Gazprom exercising monopoly power? Answer, very. You know, how efficient? Uh, how, what, you know, does the Russian foreign ministry have high-caliber diplomats? You know, probably not. Is Russia good at playing divide and rule with its European neighbours? Answer, yes. So you have to look at it as a kind of matrix with both um, you know, our weaknesses and how Russia takes advantage of them, Russia's remaining strengths and how it uses them, Russia's big weaknesses, and perhaps why we don't take advantage of them. That's so our sort of final point. I, was, I just, you know, I long for us to play divide and rule against them the way they play divide and rule against us. It wouldn't be wonderful if we said to Gazprom, that's really interesting new plan you've got. We can see it's going to make your shareholders and your managers very rich. But Unfortunately, you're going to have, some di- have to have some difficult conversations with your friends in the Kremlin first. Or if we said to the Kremlin, that's great, but you're going to have to have a difficult conversation with Gazprom about that. You know, we never use their tax against, against them, and I wish we did.
2: Well, this has been, I think, a phenomenal talk. A clear argument. I was going to explain why it was a phenomenal talk, but everybody wanted to applaud. So let me just tell you, uh, by the book, it's right out here. I think our author will be around to sign some copies.
0: The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.